Hello, I'm John Steele of Cafe Direct, and this is the Building Better Business podcast, a podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money. Unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. This week's guest is Jenny Costa, founder of Rubies in the Rubble. Rubies in the Rubble is a sustainable brand that makes condiments from surplus fruit and veg. Jenny started the business through her passion for avoiding food waste and through her desire to tackle the enormous problem that it poses globally. Food production and waste is a huge contributor to climate change and Jenny saw a situation was just plain wrong and she wanted to change it. Here is her story on how she started Rubies in the Rubble and how she grew it into the successful business it is today with products stocked in major retailers and restaurants across the UK. How did you come up with Rubies in the Rubble as an idea? Come on. So I suppose going right back, I was brought up on a really small farm on the west coast of Scotland. My parents are very sustainably minded. We have our own water well from water off the mountains. We have a wind turbine for electricity. My mother is really proud of the fact that she can feed the whole family from her veg patch pretty much the whole year round. My dad, normally we'd have, I used to have pet lambs, I had a pet pig, and we'd have something in the freezer for the rest of the year. But it was a really, food was so central to our upbringing and a real joy as well. My sister and I both loved cooking and it was always a real excitement. I think since the age I was about six, we had a cooking rotation at the, the house and it was always a different competition. So you'd have feeding everyone off of the farm. I've got to interrupt you. Your parents had kids age six cooking. I mean, I was so young, but I remember, and some of them were really basic. Like my sister used to just do couscous. It was her big thing, was couscous in in a hundred ways. But yeah, they got us really excited about cooking. And we had these, it got more and more elaborate and you'd be feeding the family under a fiver and there'd be all these different competitions. Anyway, then I, I went off to university. I'd always loved maths. So I did a master's in mathematics and economics. And then ended up following everyone else. I went into the city, got a job. It was 2009 at the time. And it was just going into the financial crisis. It was quite hard. And I just sort of jumped on anything. And I went into a hedge fund that I had no interest in. But actually, I loved it. I learned a lot. I mean, the, the key thing I think I came away with was that every business, when you're that young and you've never been in a business, and it seemed quite scary from the outside, but every business is just a group of people with the same aim trying to get something done and things go wrong. Uh, wise words. It, yeah. It's, 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 I think I think before you go into business, you see these big, big machines and think that everyone's brain boxes or they know the answers. And when I was there, I kept on thinking finance is just not my gig. I, I had no aspiration to be the next person up. And I kept on thinking if I'm, I'm still here when I'm 40, just for the paycheck, I'll be really disappointed. And one day I was 25 and I was cycling home. And I was thinking, you know, what would really make me tick? And I read an article in the Evening Standard about bin divers. And it was talking about people getting arrested for trying to get into the back of supermarket bins and supermarkets locking the bins. And it was in the days where we had a lot of sell-by dates. And so the food was perfectly good, but it was past the sell-by date. And it got me thinking, not really, I mean, I did do quite a bit of bin diving, but not that I, I wanted to get into that, but it got me thinking about the whole food supply chain and thinking, you've got f- supply and demand and either side is, is so fragile. It's unpredictable. We don't know what the weather, you know, our food is governed by the weather. Farmers are on the field. They don't really know what the harvest is going to be. And on the other side, 
we decide what we want to eat at 4pm and walk into supermarkets with this huge abundance. And with food being perishable, what happens when that supply and demand doesn't add up? And anyway, I had this going around in my head and I remember getting home with my flatmates sitting on the sofa and just Googling food waste. And this was 2010. No one was talking about food waste at this time. It was a really hippie notion of bin divers, freeganism. And the more I researched about it, I just couldn't believe that we were, first of all, wasting a third of what we produce globally. Uh, there was a lot of talk of by 2050, we were going to double our food supply to feed the expected 9 billion on the planet, but yet wasting a third of it. The agriculture or the production of food is the single largest impact that we as uh, humans have on our planet from deforestation, water usage, um, and the carbon footprint is enormous for producing food. But the carbon footprint of food waste alone, just to put it into perspective, it's like if it was a country, you get you get China, you get America, and you get food waste. So it, it's huge, the impact. You know, reading this when no one was talking about it, I was like, well, what's going on? You know, we're all talking about you know, changing our cup or getting rid of plastic bags. And why aren't we valuing food again? And two generations ago when people would never let something go to waste and so I started going along to wholesale fruit and veg markets going along to farms trying to get an understanding of where the waste was happening and uh, the more I read about it and researched it the more I sort of couldn't help but talk about it and tell people about it and cycling back one night at 4am with my basket full of surplus and I started thinking about my mum and her vegetable garden and she used to preserve everything whenever we had a glut or an abundance I was like this is Essentially, what's happened is food being perishable. There's, it's perfectly good, but there's not somebody that wants it right now. I can take this. I can do the old-fashioned, traditional way of preserving something, raise awareness around this need to value food again. And I was thinking about the diamonds and the dust, and I just thought I'm going to call it rubies and the rubble, and let's let's go for it. There you go. Yeah, that was the start, really. It's an absolutely wonderful name. I mean, I think rubies and the rubble. It's it's so distinct. It's got so much emotion to it, but also we all know what it what it means. It's fantastic. How did it feel when you did this after you'd you know you were young, you'd been to university, you'd been working in this in the big city and stuff, and then I mean, did it feel really brave and risky, or did it just feel like the right thing to do? I, I was interested to see how you felt about these things. It felt like the right thing to do, and I think. At the time, and especially looking back, a lot of people said, were always asking, and especially when they, people have got an idea of their own and so saying, how do you take the step? And I think, first of all, I was really fortunate. I was 25. I was on a good salary. I'd made some savings. I had this knowledge as well that I wanted to do something purposeful. I wanted to do something I really cared about. And I could, if I really went at it and you know did it my all for a couple of years and it failed, I would have learned so much in it that I could then go and try and get another job with a load of experience that I would never get just sitting in a big organization. But I also think when people say, when's the right time to start a business? I think it's like when you can't not, it's you, you, you've got that passion, you, you, you feel so right and you, you can't do anything but not. And especially because this business, I mean, Rubies and the Rebel came from such a passion that it, it wasn't almost a business. It was just a want to act. Well, it, and it came from, really, it came from your DNA. It came from the way you'd been brought up, from the things you believe in, and then the situation that's so wrong that you'd seen. So it's pretty powerful stuff, if I may say. So It's a bit like Cafe Director. I mean, you increasingly think, why would you buy, um, you know, a ketchup or a coffee from a business that isn't changing the world in a world that God needs changing so rapidly. So it's, it's just fabulous. And I think when I first saw you and you were doing that talk all those years ago, it felt like it was quite early stage. It, it felt really great. It feels like you have, as a business, grown up and you're much more available and 
stuff like that. I don't know. Does it feel quite different now? Yeah, I think um, if I had had a business head on you know, when I was starting Ruby's, I was brought up with chutneys and relishes and we had them on the table. I never, re- we never really had ketchups or any of that. We wouldn't buy a condiment and a chutney and a relish just change. It transforms a meal and you can have it with all sorts of things, with pies, with stews. You can, I mean, you can go, go to town with it. And going into chutneys and relishes, you realise that most of the nation have it once or twice a year. And I think we we were a really sort of people love what we were doing, but sort of saying, I just, I, I never really buy you what you're selling, but I love what you're standing for or I buy it for somebody else or it's a gift or it's an occasion. And then we had a big pivot when we went into plant-based mayonnaises and I think eventually had a product that our audience really wanted. And then the other big shift for us was ketchup and ketchup was something I'd wanted to do for years, but I knew that if I was going to do it and make an impact, it had to do and taste and act like what people expect from a ketchup. And I needed a big partner to do it with so that we could go scale with it. So yeah, that was the ketchup has been a big transformation. And I think actually in, in a strange way, COVID has been as well for us. It almost ruined our business because we were 80% focused on restaurants before. It was um, We had some amazing relationships with different restaurants. And I've always loved it as well. You speak direct to a chef. It's a, it's a lovely, I was nervous about going into that, especially in the condiments aisle, a bit of a graveyard aisle in the supermarkets with a sea of red around it and being a little skew of an unknown brand um, at a higher price point. Because of COVID, it really forced us in there. We sort of we lost 80% of the business and it was think or swim, let's get in, which has been good. Clearly, the pandemic is a terrible thing, but it's also the crisis has helped some of us just see things more clearly and respond and flourish. Definitely. Um, so no, it's been quite remarkable, hasn't it? But uh, we both run these purpose-led businesses and um, we want to keep encouraging people to do the same thing and we want to get young people to view life in the same way as you did. I mean, starting a business from scratch, I must say, is a challenge. I, I did it once and I lost a lot of money and stopped after a few years. But I had the same attitude as you, which is, you know, I, I want to do it. I believe in what I'm doing and I'll give it everything. And if it works, it does. If it doesn't, I it's work because I've learned and I've, I've given it the best I can. What would your thoughts and advice be to people who are going out there? Because there's a lot to do in setting up a business. I mean, what are the things to think about and how do you think about them slightly differently because of the purpose? I think the exciting thing with a purpose sort of led business is that you've got two strands in a way. You've got to be a business. You've got to be profitable. And that's that's key. You can have the best idea in the world, but unless somebody's, you've got a demand for what you're creating, whether it's a service or a product, no one's going to buy into that idea. And I think that was a a big eye-opener for me, I think, when starting. I was quite naive at the beginning of just thinking, I'm going to make the best-tasting product and everyone's going to want it. And you go out with your product and you realize how competitive it is, whether you're trying to get something onto a shop shelf. And they've already got – the shelf is full of products that people know and they're buying into. So it's a big risk to ask somebody, the first seller, sort of getting somebody to put it on the shelf and take something off that's doing very well or that people are already buying into to take something brand new. And then the the second sort of time is how is a consumer then going to want to take that off the shelf? So I think being key with how do you reach the consumer? And there's so many different ways of doing that that you can go through the classic way of selling to a, a shop or you can go direct or wh- however your service is, how are you going to reach that consumer and what's the cost of getting to that consumer? And then also what your messaging is. I think I spent quite a few years always pushing our food waste message on the front and you realize at the shelf point when you're about to buy something and you just want a tasty product you don't believe that it's going to taste good and you need to get that priority of messaging right as well those two things I think for me is there a demand for the product 
how are you going to reach the consumer and then you've got a mission and that that's on your heart and you hope that people will buy into it eventually and, and understand and feel your mission but first and foremost your product has got to be amazing and you've got to shout that first. There's such a market-orientated perspective. I mean, I think poor old Cafe Direct, for all its wonderfulness, because we were so mission-driven well before this stuff was happening, for years we did what you, you're describing. You know, we put the farmers on the front of the pack and we were very proud about the, the mission. And you forget in that moment of truth, you've got to out-compete Heinz or Nestle or whoever. And so you need to really be much more market-orientated. I mean, it's taken us... a a while to get to that but it is that balance isn't it yeah i mean me too and i, I think in a way you, you sort of mentioning that you're starting to see rubies more and more it's been in the last three years that we've had that pivot of and it was quite a hard pivot to to do when your passion is the mission and you think oh, i just want people to know about this and people do care about this but you forget that that's a slither of the population and really when someone's got a second to choose give them something that they know is going to look and taste and do what they expect and then let them read the story and fall in love with it after once you've answered those questions. That's what we, we've learned. And I think that that's why the conversation is quite important for any social entrepreneurs is I think your start point is you want everybody to know what you believe in and that it matters. And I guess it's it's that business point that you made about making a bit of money and that piece about market orientation where you really need to win on the shelves or win in that moment of truth, wherever that is, isn't it? So. I think as well, being really sure on what the first three years of Rubies in the Rubble, because when I was starting, I wanted the whole thing to be from things that people undervalued. And at the time, I had a girl sleeping on my sofa for a soup kitchen that I was I was helping out in. And she was from um, Hungary and she was obsessed with cooking. And so she got really excited about my relishes and the different pickles and chutneys. And she was my first employee. And then three of her friends joined and it was an amazing kitchen. And we had this sort of buzz. We, we got a porter cabin from, it was an old burger van that was doing up the Olympics at the time. And we put it onto the wholesale fruit and veg market. And that was this little, we converted this burger kitchen into our chutney kitchen. And we had just these incredible three years and we were selling down at Borough Market, selling to eight different waitroses and a couple of other delis. And then it got to a point where I was just like, this is never going to break even a good day when we smash out 150 jars. But you couldn't pay everyone's wages and cover our rent and things on on that. And it was a very big eye opener for me and and quite a pivotal turning point as well when People were saying, why don't you be a charity? I mean, you love this. You've got this amazing community. You're giving people jobs. You're training them up. I knew my one big, big passion and focus was the food waste element. And keeping very clear and strong to that, to make a big impact, I needed to expand production. I needed to be able to go direct from farmers and be able to actually be a proper support to them and pay them a a good price for what others see as waste. And also to raise awareness to actually get more products out and be selling across the country. Hopefully people read the back of a jar and, and think differently about what they're doing in their own fridge. But yeah, it was a horrible moment of thinking, I'm actually going to you know, change this. And now we work with third party manufacturers. Um, and essentially we are just, we source the surplus, we make the recipes, we teach them. And, and we've we've worked with the same, same manufacturers for seven years now. Um, so it's a nice close relationship and they're definitely bought into our mission because it's not an easy one to be processing wonky bananas and all sorts. Oh, I'm so pleased you didn't become a charity. I think it's it's so important to be a business and help people see business differently. And it's hugely exciting. You've only just got started, but yet you're doing so well. So where do you want to get to? I mean, my mission, and I've always sort of had this feeling of wanting to create the body shop of food, meaning from that, that 
right at the heart of it, I believe that we've got a planet that can feed its people. And at the moment, our food system is broken. And while food waste is such, I mean, I think that the biggest thing that we need to change is preventing wasting that third of food um, wasted. And when we look at COP26, it's it's just been um, happening in climate change as well. I mean, food waste, if we can reduce that, it would have the biggest, I mean, such a big impact from deforestation, from land use, from water use, from the carbon footprint being so big. And I sort of mentioned it, I mean, it's, it's higher than all of air flights. It sounds so simple, but my mission would be to raise huge awareness around changing people's attitudes, making people see food as differently and getting our products into every household. At the moment, we're in UK, but I'd love to to get international as well. Staying very much in condiments for quite a while. Who knows? Yeah, I think it is about changing how people view food, isn't it? There are no scale ethical food businesses in the world as yet, I don't think. I mean, I think that's what needs to happen. You need to have that reference point rather than it being some of these multinationals that have been around for so long. I mean, it's very exciting seeing change, though. I think people are maybe driven from consumers and the want for change, but people are thinking differently and thinking about their supply chains differently, which is exciting to see. Yeah, I mean, I've been working far too long. Now I've been working about 30-odd years now, and the difference over those 32 years or something is remarkable and is meaningful. And then I think in the last 10 years, so since you've been doing Ruby, the change has been quite profound, certainly. And it's accelerating, isn't it? I think um, I always say to people, it's hard to differentiate my own little world that I'm in, which is quite you know narrow and I live in a quite sustainable kind of world and the rest. But I feel like the momentum is is quite phenomenal. And I feel like COVID, through all its tragedy, has given us a moment for people to say, what really matters in my life? No, there's B cause businesses like your own. It does feel like momentum is with us. And I think it's really important that we're quite conscious about seizing the day as well. Because I think probably, you know, if, if you don't, it could change in five or 10 years time. But it feels like a really exciting time to be in a purpose-led business. And as a consumer, I mean, I'm going to feel like a very bad consumer, I'm sure. But as a, as a consumer, how do I tackle food waste i mean i i've always done it by being you know brought up by good yorkshire parents that means that i always leave the plate completely clean but i can't keep doing that without exercising more and more so what else should i be thinking about (laughs) i mean i always say the same it sounds boring but knowing what's in your cupboard knowing what's on your fridge so you're not overbuying to begin with and then thinking differently about food so when you have got leftovers putting them in a tupperware enjoying them for lunch the next day we utilize and i have two freezers actually and we, we use our freezers incredibly well i think people often underutilize a, a freezer so for example you get a really nice loaf of bread and you know that you're not going to utilize the whole thing in time i'll either chop it half of it up into slices and stick it in the freezer while it's still really nice and fresh and then you can take out those slices and just very simple things you can freeze pretty much everything i mean people you, you forget that you can you can freeze cheeses freezing milks red wine, putting them into ice trays for adding to stock and things later. There's so many different or vegetables that you've got left over, either just cooking them up and putting them in a Tupperware to be able to add to a soup or a stew for another time. But just seeing food as something that is so precious that you wouldn't want to throw it away. And then you know, it doesn't mean you have to eat it all that second. It's trying to see it as, as how can I be creative and either utilizing it for the children or you're having it the next day or making it into soup or, or just simply freezing it for another time. I think what's quite important and remarkable is that those kind of things 
are positive and enjoyable and rewarding. And, you know, like putting bread into a freezer is also, it's got convenience. It's, it's actually attaching, getting rid of food waste and meeting these kind of consumer metrics of, oh, I need things to be convenient. And uh, for many years, I've put my bread in the freezer and the occasion is the same. And a loaf of bread will last you weeks and weeks or months without being horrible in your little bread bin or whatever. Yeah, there's nothing worse than a bit of stale bread. There's only positives about it and... It deals with the one of the biggest drivers of the climate disaster we're all facing too. So I'd also really encourage people to, I think there's a little bit, especially in the UK, or I don't know if it's cultural as well, that we can, we're affluent enough to afford to waste. And giving people the courage of just, you know, you're out at a nice restaurant and you're with a bunch of friends and you're not going to finish it to ask for a doggy bag or a box to take that home in. And, and you're going to really enjoy it the next day. But having it as a, so sort of a bit of a stance and people are always sort of wish that they'd done that too. But it, I think there's a, there's a little bit of a stigma around, does this look like I'm, you know, I just, I don't really know what that stigma is, but people, even at, at friends' houses, I normally have something in my bag because I just know that often people are like, oh, I'm going to throw this all away or I haven't finished it. And it, it does make people think when you value something that much, it changes how they might act as well. It's quite an interesting one, isn't it? In my, my little world, we'll do that in restaurants and stuff like that. And it, I think it comes from the States because my, my partner lived in the States for quite a long time. And it's weird. I think, you know, the States, which has got lots of things that need solving as we, we all have, has this thing where actually they take the, the food home. And um, as you say, it's that's a very emotional kind of cultural thing that you need to get over because nowadays I don't think anybody would blink an eyelid. And as you say, you'd then have some some great food the next day and you'd have saved money and saved on, on the environment. And so there are some interesting kind of cultural dynamics to trial. You know, if you try it, I mean, it, it's great, as you say. If you link it all together, you can put that bit of curry in the freezer or whatever you want to do. So it all works. So straightforward, isn't it? It's so straightforward. I think that's the, the lovely thing around food waste is that it's available to everybody. And I think some of the reasons why food is being wasted is very complicated. It's wasted in developing and developed countries for very different reasons. For in developing countries, it's often further upstream from storage, poor storage or infrastructure. But in the UK, especially, most of it's happening in our, our households and in the restaurants. And we're choosing to waste. And it's just trying to frame that differently that we can potentially afford to waste from a financial point of view but we can't afford it from our planet point of view you got me thinking too much now because it's almost like people are not choosing they're, they're not conscious of the decision are they yes you're right i think that's a very privileged and then position to be in and then there's there's others that and i understand there's such challenges around it as well that you sort of if you are struggling to afford to, to eat it's sometimes cheaper to go to a fast food joint and know that i'm going to enjoy and eat the whole meal and I don't have to turn my cooker on and cook something or I might not know how to cook something from scratch and how to utilize, how to cook a chicken and then make a soup from it the next day and enjoy the leftovers. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of challenges and it hits all sorts of other challenges in, in society as well. Moving on to you and we'll check on your level of humility and uh, humbleness. But I mean, what is it like to be an inspirational business leader, Jenny? I mean, that's very kind to say that. We're definitely still learning from the likes of you and sort of looking up to other companies. So I think we're very much on a journey. I think it's been wonderful, especially as a, as a young woman starting up a business as well, to feel like you can create a role model for other people. But I definitely have my own role models looking up to others. I think the more people that go out and do something 
that they're passionate about and break the mold and and just go for things that are on their hearts the more we'll see more and more different things flourishing and I, I get very excited in the UK especially there's just there's so many businesses starting up so much entrepreneurship there's a you know the market for it people are wanting to buy into small businesses and buy into their mission and, and support that as well so no it's an exciting time to be playing and, and a wonderful network as well. As this inspirational leader, how would you describe yourself? What, what's your style? If I'm going to get that title, I mean, I'm actually, I'm incredibly, as a, as a person, I go with my gut. I'm very slapdash in my nature. I get very excited by something. I'm very gut-led. I think now I've got this wonderful team around me, and I think you need a bit of, you need a bit of numbers and reality as well. But I'm pretty quick at doing things. I'm very much a believer of trying something small, seeing if there's a demand or if it works, and if it doesn't, pivoting from that. My style with the team, I would imagine, is also quite. I love making sure that everyone's a part of the mission and people are involved and really passionate about it but then leaving them to their job and giving them complete responsibility on their area i don't think i have much of another style other than i'm pretty approachable as a person as well i think i've got the title right you know <laughs> Very sweet. i mean i think the instinct and the bravery and the, the heart and the sleeve stuff is so important in in life and in, in work and then recognizing that a little bit of kind of world-class discipline and sophistication around it is also a powerful and unique combination is is your team. So no, it's sounds fantastic. And that last point you made, I mean, I always think, you know, our role in the jobs we have is very much to create an environment that so that people can be the most authentic and best versions of themselves. And if you do that, 10, 15, 20 people can change the world. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? It's a lovely role to have. There's no point in hiring someone if you don't trust and believe that they're going to be the best in their role. And then hopefully just keeping the momentum and keeping the excitement and the mission alive um, within the team. Yeah. But I mean, so many businesses and business leaders would not let people be that. And so that's an important message for people to hear and an important thing for us to all think about and keep learning about, I think. So there you go. Oof. Serious stuff. I mean, I think as as a small business, especially sort of coming out of this crazy time of COVID, I'm sure you've had the supply chain nightmares, different customers, different focuses. The business has pivoted quite a lot. But yet, you were mentioning earlier, sort of seizing the day. There's this amazing energy and excitement and especially with COP26 and this sort of let's change the world feeling what is the next big things on the agenda for Cafe Direct I mean what, what are the big things that you're focused on we became a B Corp a couple of years ago we're now sort of starting to track our carbon I find that a complete maze I'm sort of one minute uh, the offsetting the actual changing your carbon the how you work with a farm all those things but uh, yeah I'd love to know what are the sort of main big things that you think are the most important things to make an impact as a, as a business as you're growing Wow. I mean, from a sustainability point of view, I'm sort of in the same place as you. There's a lot of the technical bits. I mean, I'm I'm sort of a, an entrepreneur kind of business person, you know, mixture of classic FMCG and then a bit of, you know, just being instinctive and enjoying that. So there's a lot of that technical stuff, which I think you need experts in. We've just recruited a, a head of purpose and a, a really high caliber individual from a, you know, really remarkable business. What I'm finding, which is different to 10 years ago, is the move of human capital to the businesses like yours and mine. I mean, people want to work in these places because they recognize there is permission to make a real difference rather than just be part of a, a large business that's there to serve shareholders in a certain way. So we're resourcing to deliver in much more depth. So we're bringing on more technical expertise. 
because we're quite well governed and you know we have farmers on the board of directors and we have a clear line of sight to our growers and we're then buying on terms that means that we're always creating impact through the model we we sort of drive impact at a level where we're paying fair prices and investing in capacity but i think we can be more sophisticated in our understanding of the outcomes of that and then i think the area that you're touching on like uh, carbon and all the other aspects of the whole value chain we need more resourcing to get that right as part of our kind of governance we have a construct called the gold standard that has kind of four metrics that are about um, farmers lives the environment changing the way consumers view things and changing the way business views things. And we've got quite sophisticated metrics over the next nine years against that. Our issue is we need the resourcing to make it happen. And so we're now at the point to do that. But interestingly, we, we couldn't have probably done it earlier because we weren't commercially strong enough and clear enough on how to build a brand to scale. I think now that we're clear on that, we now have a better position to do that. Because to your point, we've, we've lost many millions of pounds over the years as we've always put the purpose first. We've sort of matured to recognize that, A, you need to be financially sustainable, and B, I remember when I first joined, people were very much small is beautiful. What a load of nonsense. We need these businesses to be the biggest businesses on the planet in both commercial and impact terms, and that's it. So we're very like you. We're very ambitious to scale up, and we've been growing consistently for four and a half years, every quarter, quarter and quarter. And we managed to grow through the pandemic, even though we lost, yeah, you know, 90% of our at-home business. You know, we just want to keep scaling and scaling. Well, I think we used to think it was all about the impact model and, and farmers, which it is. But I think in terms of helping the world see things differently, you've got to be commercially successful because the world is still viewed through that lens. So I think that's the way to shake it up and to get other corporates and consumers to think about it is to win out commercially, isn't it? And winning out commercially, I think in the similar heart to Ruby's, Cafe Direct, right at the very heart of it, the more you sell, the bigger the impact you have. And that's the real difference that I see of the old-fashioned business model where CSR was a tag on at the end, or what do we do with our profits? Or we've got this little pool of money that we, we you know, would do something and we believe in this charity. And the best businesses that are going to make the biggest impact is when the way that they supply and the way that they produce, the more that they do, the bigger the impact is. And so you can never lose that. And and that's where the bigger, the better, because you can make that impact. And I think it's a really good point on the, you know, being commercially successful shows to the world that you can make a difference. And people slowly will, once you've got that platform of they love your brand and they're buying into it anyway, they'll then learn and love love what you stand for. I think the other thing is we do need to change the whole world sort of thing because um, we had a board meeting recently and we we're talking a lot about impact and we, we got a session where we got um, Raul, who's this farmer from Peru, who's a I mean, farmer, he runs a business, you know, he runs a cooperative of farmers and um, we're having a discussion about impact and change and the message we heard from him was, you know, so we, we're, we're buying on fair trade terms and organic terms and then the message he was making was, we love that but then it's diluted by all these commercial players. So, you know, when you're 5% of his volume or 10% of his volume, the other 90% dilutes that that living income down, dilutes that capacity to change things and to manage the environment down. And so, firstly, I think we've, we've got to grow faster and faster and faster and faster. And secondly, we do need people to actually pay a fair income to farmers and recognise that you need to create sustainable businesses rather than the old-fashioned model, which was never like that. We're finding at Ruby's in the Rubble, this sort of the race to be carbon neutral from a marketing point of view is on. And you see these sort of large companies that have a huge carbon footprint 
all becoming or slowly becoming carbon neutral planting trees i spent a lot of time up in scotland over the summer and the amount of spruce forests that are there which have no habitat inside of them tightly packed it's the cheap fast-growing tree forests that are now covering the landscape they also have when water washes off them they're, they're putting a poison into the rivers so it's causing problems with the fishing and things and but there's just this race to let's do anything that removes or captures carbon and i think as a as a business i'm really struggling on how do we react to that because i think the first thing we've done is you stop measuring your carbon footprint and we've now looked at our whole supply chains and now seeing the, the big areas where we can make change and that's really all you know i'd like to just target those and let's just think right how do we take our carbon footprint right down across the whole the whole scale of it and we've obviously because we measure the carbon footprint of the fruit and veg saved we can offset that a little bit as well but i'm in such two minds around what to do from the carbon offsetting point of view i get nervous as well that from farming and what does what does smallholder farming look like in the uk as well that it's now becoming so attractive for a farmer to diversify from growing food to having subsidies essentially um, but getting money to plant trees which is wonderful but will we look back in 10 years and think we don't grow any food anymore or the only food that we do grow is huge corporates that are plowing enormous uh, sort of fields and areas in the UK and then all of the small holdings are gone. It's a hard one to get right as a business of what's the right thing. I mean, I think the answer to that is to follow your instincts and your beliefs and not copy these competitors who are doing a number of them in all these markets are doing a good job of making it look as though they've saved the world and they are you know, net positive and my goodness, it's fabulous. But I mean... Your instinct would be what's your view on offsetting and what's right for you, I guess. I mean, we feel the same way. I mean, you're seeing so many large-scale businesses owned by shareholders who are only interested in making profit and doing a very good job, as they do, of positioning kind of good-for-the-planet stuff. I think um, my instinct would be to keep doing what you believe in and let it win the day. It's quite challenging because it is an increasingly competitive and murky world out there, isn't it, in this area? We used to measure our carbon footprint every year and we were clearly measuring far too much and not doing anything and, you know, not doing enough in between. We then did a big carbon footprint review at the beginning of the pandemic, so nearly two, two years ago. And we said we wouldn't do it every year. We'd do it, you know, once every three years and we'd make sure we had a comprehensive plan. And I guess that's part of this head of purpose resourcing is you need a, a plan to address it. But it's also, I don't know whether I, whether I'm right or wrong on this, but I think it's important to do what you think is right for you, really. Yeah, so we're not particularly good at spinning stuff out of it. We're just trying to keep doing what our mission is and stuff. And I think it's well as becoming more and more confusing from a consumer's point of view. There's, there's so many different stamps that a business can have. It's a bit of a minefield for the consumer to try and understand what products they understand and want to buy into and who's doing what yeah because i resisted b Corp for quite a while because i was just fed up of all these accreditations and certifications and all this stuff there are pros and cons to them all aren't there but i think the, i think the b Corp one's quite interesting it's quite a a modern and, and complete kind of way of looking at things which i think is good but it, it's important that everybody comes to the party it's just a bit irritating sometimes that if you're not careful it's sort of downplaying stuff as well so we love internally b corp because it's, i think we've been so focused as a business from our environmental impact from the food waste side from our product side but it's allowed now and most people that join rubies and i think probably the same with cafe direct they're, they're people that are passionate about that they've got things on their heart that they want to change and it's allowed everyone to sort of look at how we hire, how we do things in the community, what is our community impact that we're making around our office and around our space as well. And people have 
taken ownership on that or really decided to I just want to look at our logistics like what how are we selling into different places across the UK and it's it's been really exciting seeing some of the changes that have come out of that and people that are very passionate about culture within the business how, do, how are we keeping that alive and so I've loved B Corp for that and um, but I do agree on and I think they are looking into it as well but how you can as a consumer understand well that they're a B Corp company but is there anything that they really stand for? Like, where do they score highly on in those five different areas? Is it environment? Is it people? Is it fair labor? Whatever it is. And you could then get a spike on sort of knowing actually B Corp is not just a, they're wonderful and it means that they're fair trade and everything else that happens, but actually this company is fair trade and they're B Corp and trying to really understand that because it does give a real halo effect that I think any B Corp, you just assume, well, they do everything well. And it might be that they score very highly in, in one specific area yeah that's the lesson from being you know a member of fair trade for 28 years is you mustn't let it become a little hygiene factor that means oh i can i can do good by doing that there's a bit more depth to it isn't there a bit more kind of difference between the different businesses you can choose to buy from but um on the whole though it's been a great as you say for employees it's been a great modernizer and it's also for us it's um given us a different group of people to hang out with and to think about things uh, differently which we, we didn't have before just doing the fair trade stuff yeah, so we're, we're sort of equally ambitious, equally energised. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting time, isn't it, basically? So, yeah, can't be bad. It really is. I mean, one of the most challenging times to be doing business, I, I feel, from all sorts of problems. We've had problems with manufacturing this year, problems with supply, or problems with deliveries, like so many other food and drink businesses. Um, but it's also a really exciting time that change is happening, and let's hope it's for the best. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. What an inspirational story, an incredible business, and so much of your personal passion driven through all of it. And if you haven't tried Rubies in the Rubble's products yet, you really must do. They're fabulous and making a big difference. Join us next week on Building Better Business. <laughs>